1: Good morning. My name is Charles Cutillo. Good morning. My name is Charles Cutillo. I'm with New Book Network, the History Division. Today we are pleased and honored to have Professor Emeritus of Commonwealth History at Cambridge University, Anthony Hopkins. Professor Hopkins is a widely acknowledged specialist on the economics of British imperialism in the 19th and 20th centuries. Today, we are to discuss his new book, American Empire, Global History. Professor Hopkins, uh, first thing, what may one say is the thesis of your book
0: Yes, thank you very much, Charles, and let me begin by thanking you uh, for taking my work so seriously and giving me the opportunity to discuss it with you and with all those who follow um, the network. So the main thesis of this book, which is rather big, can be summarized as follows, that uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries, the the trajectory of the United States, That's to say, the course of its historical evolution has typically been seen as being largely independent of other Western uh, developments, at least after independence in 1783, down to approximately uh, Pearl Harbor in 1941, which is, of course, a very long stretch of history. My argument on the contrary, is that the United States' history during this time, not in particulars, but in terms of its broad evolution, should be seen as part of an evolving Western imperial system. And I use the term imperial here in a non-ideological way. That is to say, I'm looking at the expansion of these great territorial empires during the period from let us say 1700 to their demise in 1950 as being a huge transformative development the costs and benefits the morality and so on are not matters that i have chosen to discuss in this particular book so that is the essence of the at least the approach to uh, my my book and its thesis
1: you begin your book with the recounting of the British defeat in 1916 in the Battle of Kut in what is today Iraq then Ottoman Mesopotamia why so yes.
0: Well, thank you. That is perhaps, at first sight anyway, a rather odd choice to begin a book on the United States by talking about an obscure episode in the history of the British Empire when it was, as some people think, towards its close. The point is that um, this episode, in which there was a a crisis and something of a disaster for, for British military power, has been seen, as a turning point, a turning point between, from the British point of view, the rise of empire and its expansion from the 1800s down to the First World War, and after then, the story changes. It's no longer one of expansion. It is one of grappling with nationalism and then inevitable decline. That's the British side, but I try to show that the U.S. side is introduced into this because the episode has been seen as a turning point for the United States too. Books have been written under the title Heir to Empire, in which it's argued that this is the point where the United States in 1917 comes into the battle and that's the origin of what we later know as the rise of the superpower in the later 20th century. So the two things do come together, and I use their joint appearance in the literature to discuss the whole question of what kinds of comparisons can be made. That is to say, what we're talking about here is the trajectory of the United States, its history over nearly three centuries, but also how it might stand in relation to that of the other great Western powers, and specifically the other great Western Empires of which by far the most important was Britain. So that interaction of the two during the First World War, the two great powers, as they were becoming that during that time, can be used as a point of departure suggesting the whole question of similarity and possible contrast, of course, uh, during the period of, that I am covering. You pe- oh, may I add to yes. that, that if uh, you... Fast forward then to the epilogue, which um, I am particularly pleased with because it was, I wanted to find an epilogue which complemented the starting point. So I chose an event in the invasion of Iraq, which began in March two, uh, 2003. And of course, I wanted to find uh, something going on in Kut with the United States as it was with the British in 1915, but Kut was not well known. uh, It was a small small village in 1915, quite a big town in 2003, but it was not known like Fallujah and Mosul and so on as a scene of a big battle. And It took me ages and I nearly despaired and gave up until I stumbled across uh, some work by journalists which directed me uh, to Kut in 2003. so the episode I begin with in Iraq during the First World War, where I focus upon a British army and so on, is complemented in 2003 by my focus on the United States, those years later, entering Cook as, Cook as part of a second invasion. So what I do in the epilogue, if I may just fast forward to underline the point I tried to make with regard to the prologue and the whole thesis of the book, is to say that at first sight, these two things look very similar. Um, You've got the fog of war, you've got an invasion by a foreign power, and so on. But what I'm arguing, and this comes through, I hope, very much in the epilogue, is to say, despite the apparent similarities at first sight, the underlying conditions, the broad international context in which the Western empires had flourished during the era of the British And also during the era of the U.S. Territorial Empire, the islands that it acquired in the Caribbean and Pacific from 1898 to the 1950s, that had come to an end. And that underlying the apparent similarities were marked changes in the world order, which, in my view, made uh, the creation of new empires or the expansion of the old ones
1: impossible. Which, uh, regardless of that, overall, your assessment is that uh, you're, uh, at the very least, a skeptic in relation to the concept of uh, so-called American exceptionalism. Why so?
0: Yes. Um, well, uh the argument there, and I have to be quite concise about this because a lot has been written about American exceptionalism. It'd be easy to write yet another book showing that, uh, you know, that, that, that the exceptionalism of the United States uh, was one of the particularity, distinctiveness, rather than of some separate mission, and I didn't want to go into all of that. I have to mention the notion of exceptionalism because every Everyone does who writes in this area, but I try to argue that what really matters is not criticizing exceptionalism, but trying to find something that stands in its place. And that is where I've actually made a case for a kind of unexceptionalism of aspects, international aspects of the U.S. historical experience. So, uh, the, the question then I, I try to talk about in this in this area, without going into exceptions in great detail, is to say one has to distinguish between what you might call an ideological exceptionalism, in which there is a belief in a particular mission, and a form of exceptionalism, which you can't use the term to describe, namely, that draws attention to the distinctiveness of the United States. So. Uh, Exceptionalism in the ideological sense is very difficult to sustain. Exceptionalism in the sense of distinctiveness of the United States in many respects is of course something that has to be acknowledged quite happily, and the point here to conclude this observation is that when you look around the world at Britain, at France, at Russia, at Japan all of these countries and others have an exceptionalist ideological myth or image or mission of their own. So exceptionalism, as the United States conceives it, is not in itself exceptional. Other great powers also think they have a great mission. And secondly, other great powers also have their particularities. So in a way, I'm trying to disallow one form of exceptionalism and allowing what I'm calling to stop a confusion the distinctiveness of the United States. But having said that, if I'm not being too confusing, then that puts the United States on a par with all the other great powers which also have an ideological sense of mission which cannot be proved and are distinctive in their own right.
1: Why do you believe that, quote, globalization and empires are interlinked, unquote,
0: Well, there are many ways in which globalization, many agents of globalization, many ways it uh, has been and can be spread. Uh, The argument that I make here is not to disavow other agents and motives and impulses, uh, those of uh, pilgrims, those of the movement of uh, disease, those of the movement or spread of religions, for example. That, of course, is all important and many other things too. But the main point is to say that during this Period, that is from 1800 to about 1950, the most important, the most widespread, penetrative of these global influences uh, was the agency. Uh, brought about by the creation and expansion of territorial empires. That's really the key uh, point about why that should be so. And there are subsidiary points that I try to to mention. One of these is, of course, that um, uh, empires provide public goods. That is to say, the many... Um, illustrations of what we refer to as a public good, let us say protection to take an obvious one. Uh, All states provide public goods of one kind or another, be it infrastructure or education or something like that. But empires spread across borders, and it's by their protection activities, among other things, that they are supplying public goods which facilitate the spread of globalizing influences.
1: What do you mean exactly by your statement uh, referring to, quote, the transformative crises of the late 18th, 19th and mid-20th centuries?
0: Right. You've put your finger there on what is really the dynamic or the motor of the book. And uh, you must halt me if my answer gets prolix uh, uh, but under, or indeed uh, untrammeled because I may lose my thread. But basically, these three crises as I see them, which in themselves are scarcely unknown, but I formulate them in a way that puts them in the history of globalization. These are, as I mentioned, the dynamic that moves history forward. So to understand that dynamic, we have to just step back. To the three propositions that underlie the whole book, which follow from the argument that you um, suggested I should uh, summarize just a minute or two ago. So, there are three propositions, and, and the one that relates to globalization is that there is a history to globalization which historians have not yet, odd though it may seem, explored fully. So we have a question that social scientists also ask and that is not only when it began, but whenever we agree globalization began. What was its evolution over time? Is it something that simply gets bigger without changing its character? Or is it something uh, that has different phases, each identified by having different uh, structural characteristics? Now, my argument is that globalization, at least during relatively modern times, consisted of three phases. One I call proto-globalization, the other I call modern globalization, and the third I call post-colonial globalization, and I can elaborate on those in a second if you wish me to, but just to link that proposition with ones we've discussed, my second prop in this argument is to say, to come back to the point I made, that it is empires that are crucial uh, to the process of not only globalization in general, but to these three stages which characterize it and the final element in that is to say that once these phases get underway they are mm, travel they travel through a, a dialectical process by which their very success, in inverted commas, of creating forces of expansion, in some cases of prosperity, of greater complexity, let's settle for that, and the areas they reach, throws up forces which eventually are in a position, should they choose, and they did in the end, to overturn either violently or to make some form of smoother transition from one form of globalization To the other. I'll halt at that point because those are very big concepts that each one, of course, needs unpacking. And I'll allow you to uh, prompt me, if you wish, to say any more on any one of those uh, matters that I've discussed.
1: Well, actually, looking at it uh, from the perspective of the 18th century, or late, I should say, late 18th century crisis, could you explain for the audience um, why the uh, so called fiscal military state? Uh, was so important, particularly in the case of the UK, and why its crises in the late 18th century, affecting particularly France and uh, the UK, was so important. Yeah.
0: Yes, I'm very glad you asked that. It's a good question in itself, and it gives me the opportunity to illustrate one of these phases. Uh, Obviously, there are two more to follow, which we may or may not uh, wish to discuss or have the time to discuss. So the situation in the 18th century in Western Europe uh, is of the rise of a form of state, which uh, historians have come increasingly to refer to as a military fiscal state. Now, all states have a military and all states have a fiscality that uh, goes almost without saying. The distinctiveness of the label for this period, however, is that it draws attention to structural changes taking place through much of Europe from about the 16th century onwards, which began to expand certainly late 17th and through the 18th century. And as I say, and I'm not the only person to say this, I'm happy to say, that in, namely that what happens in the late 18th century is that these forces come together in such a way as to create what I call a fiscal crisis. So what, why did they do this? Why was there this concentration of power and this increased uh, resolution to secure the revenues, which often led to not only the expansion of trade, but to the expansion of warfare, the 18th century being one of the most uh, embattled centuries of Western Europe uh, uh, until the 20th century, when we'd learned how to do it all a much better or much worse. it, the, the gunpowder revolution lies at the foot of this at the basis of this uh, development gunpowder transformed the means of coercion and th- that was fine if you could afford to have the uh, standing armies that went along with that but particularly the capital cost of investing in cannon, maintaining and so on and so on so the, the There was a form of arms race, especially in the 18th century, which Montesquieu drew our attention to very specifically, whereby states were uh, having to uh, defend themselves or in some cases wish to expand on the basis of uh, the gunpowder revolution, their adaptation to it. This led to an increased centralization, And the centralization was uh, related also to the need for revenues, either uh, to grasp revenues from taxable peasantry within the state or to expand beyond it in order to capture um, uh, taxation from sources which were either conquered or made in some way subordinate. So the 18th century saw uh, increasing centralization, the growth of a bureaucracy to administer this, and of much greater um, disposal of armaments and resources put to warfare. One has to remember that another consideration for the definition of the military fiscal state is that these were states at this time without modern industry. They had handicrafts, they had long-distance commerce and local markets, of course, but they were basically agricultural. And the other aspect of them was they were also still dynastic states. So what you have then are what used to be called an ancien regime, if you like, but is I think rather too general a term to describe the diversity, and also it doesn't capture uh, the movement and the development which I have tried to to sketch for you. And when these states uh, became embattled seriously with the Seven Years' War, 1756 to 63, and then of course with the American Revolution, 1776, another further series of warfare in which the Spanish, the French and the Dutch participated and in a sense shot themselves in the foot because the costs of participation in that war uh, from 1778-ish onwards uh, helped to fuel the revolutions uh, that took place in many parts of Europe of course beginning with France in 1789. So what you have in the late 19th century is literally a fiscal crisis whereby the cost costs of military expansion added to the need to police those areas in in what became the United States specifically that you've already brought under control, that created a fiscal crisis because you couldn't generate the revenues without arousing huge discontent to balance the books. And it was that fiscal crisis that underpinned uh, the revolutions of the late 18th century.
1: You write about the American you write concerning uh, uh the American aspect of what you just discussed the quote the American revolution was an anglo settler revolt led principally by gentlemen of property can you explicate that a little bit
0: yes i think the point i'm trying to make and it in, in a way it sounds uh, as you put it and you put it quite accurately rather unsubtle, so Um, Of course, I'm aware that the revolution has been uh, endlessly and creatively studied by many, many fine scholars, and I'm not dissenting from their work. So, you know, we now know about the role of towns, of the uh, history from below, of the revolution, and so on. So I'm not trying to step away, still less step back from that. But I am trying to argue that what was happening in the late 18th century in what became the United States was rather typical of the general um, conditions that i 've just tried to describe so A settler revolution, yes, Uh, the point I'm trying to make there is that uh, this was not something led or actually motivated primarily, that's the important qualification, uh, by uh, the many people who participated in the revolution, uh, but was led, and I don't think this is too controversial or controversial at all, uh, by men of substance, men of property, uh, the Adams, is Jefferson himself and so Washington too uh, and 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 many others and at the end of one of the chapters I have on this matter I make the point to underline uh, the observation you've made that this was not strictly speaking a revolution of course it's called that and I don't want to dispute some of the authenticity of that of course but the, I refer to it as a secession. Uh, the revolutionaries were not attempting to overthrow the church and state, though that is what happened in the end, uh, but they were seeking to reclaim rights they thought they had and that the British were trying to take back from them. In that sense, it was a conservative secessionist movement that turned into a revolution in the sense of constitutions and anyway, uh, and was led by the the gentry we have referred to.
1: So, in essence, an American version, uh, almost in the Burkean sense of what happened in the UK in 1689.
0: Well, that's very very well put. Uh, I would say there's a lot of uh, strength in that position, and I would argue for Uh, uh, long lines of continuity uh, between the British and the settler experiences, not only before 1776, but thereafter, too, because settler societies, whether it's Canada or Australia, the mainland colonies, do not readily throw off uh, the influences and connections that made them what they were. and So you would expect to find lots of continuity, and, and and of course, you do, so that too, can be considered to be some change of emphasis uh, uh, from at least some ways of looking at the revolution. and I Just add to that that a really important point in the historiography is that after one thousand seven hundred and eighty three there is a parting of the ways, the historians of empire. And those who specialize in what is known in the, in the books and in the programs as colonial history, they finish. They go away. 1783, you hand over the baton to a new set of people whose study goes through some point in the 19th century, um, and their study is of the rise of an independent republic. Whereas the British scholars, uh, essentially, who have been looking at the 18th century as an extension of the British Empire, after 1783, they too pack their bags and disappear because they've got plenty to do. They've got to colonize Australia. They've got to understand India. So there is this parting of the ways which runs quite counter uh, to the history, actually, of all settler societies. Because as I've said, it's the continuities that emerge in nearly every case and so what I've tried to do and I don't want to advance too far in this matter but what I've tried to do after 1783 is to make the point that there is a difference between formal decolonization and effective decolonization. In 1783 the United States became formally independent but it did not necessarily acquire full or even extensive effective independence. So the argument for the first half of the 19th century down to the Civil War is that these long lines of continuity are worth perceiving, pursuing, and emphasizing, and I try to do that in uh, in one of my chapters.
1: So in essence, you, it would be accurate to say that uh, you are to a good extent uh, an upholder of continuity versus discontinuity discontinuity of course being uh, I would say the default position of most American historians who are looking at uh, American history post 1783
0: yes I think that's right Um, again it's all a matter of balance and emphasis and all I would add to what I've said so far on that is that it seems to me factually correct that if to take one example, if you look at the 18th century Anglo-American relations, uh, then there are books and discussions of what you what is called the Atlantic world or the Atlantic complex. And uh, historians have done a fantastic job showing the interconnections, cultural, political, economic, et cetera, et cetera. If you ask the question, okay, what happens to that uh, complex, diverse, important Atlantic world after 1783, the answer is that it almost disappears now of course in reality it doesn't disappear but it disappears or is given a minimal place in most of the books because as i have said what matters after 1783 to most historians and it's very important indeed is the development of the new republic uh, the creation of a state what kind of a state expansion west and south and so on so i think that it is worthwhile drawing attention uh, to the continuity of this Atlantic world, of its importance, and indeed, if you take the economic aspects of this, you can argue and Jeremy Bentham saw the point in 1793, you can argue that economically these connections grew rather than diminished after 1783. Bentham himself said, well, I translate actually, but Bentham himself said, well, you know, we thought we were doing very very well under the mercantilist regime. This was still as early as 1793, but he said, look what's happened uh, in the years since independence. Our trade, the British trade, has grown even more than ever. Our relationships are, are really recovered very well. And the Louisiana Purchase in 1803 was made possible by Barings, who became the official agents, financial agents for the new American government. So, and then culturally, too, you could see all signs of continuity. So I don't want to overdo what I have tried to explain in this very uh, necessarily cryptic way, but the essential point is, yes, these continuities can be pursued through political, economic, and cultural themes uh, through at least uh, to the Civil War.
1: And uh, post-Civil War, uh, why why would you um, uh, say... uh, That the American attempt at overseas expansion in the period 1865 to roughly mid-1890s failed rather than succeeded.
0: Yes. Uh, Well, uh, again, you touch on a a very important uh, point of historical interpretation. Uh, What I will do to try and set this up, I hope in a way that isn't too biased towards myself, but it will be evident if it is. What I'll do is just give a sentence or two about how this is often looked at. There are two ways of looking at uh, the expansion of the United States, and I'm going to just leave aside for the moment continental expansion. I'd say leave it aside, because of course it was the most important form of expansion, and you can argue, and I would argue, that it was that that occupied uh, the greater part of the energies and and resources of the the federal state, and and indeed the state governments, uh, through the 19th century. Uh, Looked In fact, in that way, you can say that by the time you get to the Great War with Spain in 1898, overseas expansion was on a very limited scale. And indeed, a very famous scholar uh, in the early 20th century coined the phrase that this was an aberration, a departure in 1898 from uh, the normal course of uh, U.S. history, which would then resume Now, that's one view. You've got an aberration and you've got rather limited expansion except within the continent. A second view is that this continental expansion was central to an understanding of the subsequent, i.e. 20th century expansion globally of the United States. You've got these uh, not just precursors, but causative elements developing in U.S. history, which have to take account. From that point of view, uh, continental and allied expansion overseas uh, flowed into uh, the story of 1898 there was a continuum there, which uh, helps to explain 1898 and subsequent developments. Now, on that front, I would make two points. Firstly, outside the United States, there were tentative uh, expansionist impulses. It's true, but they didn't really get anywhere. Uh, Perry, Commander Perry in Tokyo Bay in the 1850s it was important development, but I uh, know Japan wasn't colonized, and there was nothing really coming from that. He wanted to take Formosa. The Senate didn't want that. Uh, there was all the, there were these schemes to annex Cuba, but they came to nothing. Uh, there was some preliminary uh, exploration and filibustering in Central America, of course. All that is true. There was some involvement in the Barbary Coast, but you know when you said that, there's not much left actually so you have to rely on the argument that continental expansion fed into 1898 and here I would say that while it is perfectly true uh, that you see in the development and the creation and further development of the, of the U.S. state a predisposition towards the use of force among other things because the uh, Native Americans had to be dealt with and land colonized and so on uh, it would be it's going too far to suggest that you can then almost naturally certainly easily explain 1890 And I'll I'll just tell you now why that is the case. What I think happened after the Civil War was not the immediate unification of the once uh, divided country of the recently divided country. We now know that it took a long time to get the act together. So we're talking of uh, going into the 1880s and beyond. This is still a fragile state, but it's reached a political accommodation. So there is still going to be one state with states' rights in many respects, not slavery, of course, reaffirmed. So far, so good. But this uh, development was itself interrupted, and here I make the point with emphasis, by entirely novel forces, forces that were not present in the first half of the 19th century, forces that until the 1870s and 80s cannot be fed into the story of expansion west and south. These forces were industrialization And the more, the further development of the sense of nationalism, and not which road over and expanded on the concept of national unity. Now, both these were battles. You didn't create national unity overnight, and it was extraordinarily difficult because of massive immigrants coming in. The world had changed when people, most of the immigrants or the settlers in the States had come from the British Isles. You've got Germans, you've got Scandinavians, etc., etc. Many of them couldn't speak English. So this posed huge problems of natural, national unification. At the same time, The development of industry in parallel with that going on in Europe, almost year by year, the development of industry threw up new towns, new social forces, uh, 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 completely divorced, uh, divorced from the land and threw up. Further consideration of how these people were to be contained, so to put this very crudely or briefly anyway, there was a disjunction between the need of economic development, which was the expansion of the market, the mobility of labor etc cetera, etc, cetera, and the needs of political unity which were to control some of these things and harness them for the common good so When we talk of long continuities of continental expansion, I think we have to halt and recognize that these forces that I just referred to, of what I'm turning modern globalization developing after 1850, were the ones that have to be accounted for in understanding why the United States created its own territorial empire overseas in 1898. And one last point, which is really important, and I'm glad I've just remembered it. If you take the uh, decade of the 1860s, what's going on in the world in the 1860s? Well, of course, if we're looking at the United States, it's the end of the Civil War in 1865, and we can add to that that this is the beginnings, at least of the realizable aspiration for uniting the country on a permanent basis. Okay, what's going on in Europe? Germany, Italy were united for the first time in that decade. France, after the defeat of uh, the, the Prussian, Franco-Prussian War in 1870, set about a series of major reforms. Even Britain, following its long, slow, liberal, evolutionary, Burkean trajectory, had a major, major political reform expanding the franchise in uh, 1867. And further afield, of course, we have the Meiji Restoration of 1868. In short, what was going on in the United States in the 1860s, where you can see Clear moves towards the unification of the polity accompanied subsequently, but as a result of that unification accompanying it, the development of modern industry, exactly the same processes were underway in the major states of Europe and beginning in the first of the great states of Asia, Japan, at that same time. So when you go through to the late 19th century, you have all of these powers grappling with the more or less identical problems. How to maintain a political unity in an era in which the franchise had to be expanded, and how to maintain social control in an era in which modern industry and towns were threatening to disrupt it
1: that doesn't
0: explain 1898 but it is the starting point for an explanation
1: going back to uh, or concentrating on 1898 and the war with Spain would you say that um, what was what would you say was a more important uh, variable in terms of the causation of the war contingency of uh, political events in um uh Washington and Madrid, or for that matter Havana or um economic uh determinism
0: yes. Um, Well, I will say neither, but hope to try and put some elements of both together. Uh, The most influential book uh, on 1898, and that is a wonderful book, is that by Lefebvre, uh, and Lefebvre's book of, well, I think it's 1969, uh, written at the height of new left influence uh, of that time, uh, as a branch of the so called Wisconsin School, put very well what many others at the time were also arguing namely, that 1898 was a result of a quest for markets abroad at a time of industrial depression. So Lefebvre and others drew attention to what we, they would call and we can call non-pejoratively capitalist development of an industrial kind. They also drew attention to the crisis of capitalism so-called in the late 19th century and they linked with that a search for markets. Now, that view was and has been contested, and I think it uh, lacks any of the younger generation to refuel it, if uh, if that's possible. And the alternative views have come to the fore, and I won't run through all of them, but just give you a flavor of them. Uh, So you're quite right in drawing attention to the fact that some scholars emphasize the the role of particular individuals, uh, whether it's uh, McKinley as president or a dozen others, and emphasize the role of human action as opposed to economic determinism. Others, more recently, like Christian Hoganson, have drawn attention to the uh, supposed uh, um, cultural features of um, imperialism, the fact, uh, so it is said, that men were concerned about losing their Vitality and that the war was something which would restore them and so on. Now, um, my view is somewhat different from that, and I think the problem with the economic interpretation as it has been expressed is that uh, the areas that were colonized were of no use whatsoever in terms of markets, and they had no prospect, uh, no one knew anyway, whether they had gold or or oil, and they had neither in the event. And These were poor, war-torn countries, and it seems to me, and it always has seemed to me, to be incredible to suppose that, uh, that businessmen would search in Cuba and Puerto Rico for the markets that allegedly they could have at home. Now the counter to that is to say well that may be so but it was their perception that this was the case so they acted on the perception, they pushed the government I don't think that argument actually now can be sustained does it mean that we then push back to uh, an an alternative argument of the kind that I've suggested namely that uh, it's really about a a multi-causal approach and of individuals and so on and so on. We need to find a way I think of linking these two things together. And what I've done is to suggest uh, the following. The forces that I've identified, namely those of industrialization, of increasing immigration, of social uh, upheaval, and of the undisputed uh, political social, economic disputes, strikes, riots, and so on, of the characterized the 80s and 90s, clearly have a bearing on what is going on, not only leading to the War of 1898, but politics generally. So that would be my starting point. The question is, what sort of bearing did it have? And here, what I argue, and I certainly don't want to claim uh, originality for this, But uh, what I'm arguing is that the set of very well-known figures who we all know were actively involved, Theodore Roosevelt, Alfred Marne, Lodge, Beveridge, these uh, important politicos of the time, uh, were indeed banging the drum for empire. So the question is... What was the relationship, if any, between their desire uh, for empire and the forces that I have indicated? Now, it seems to me that it is quite mistaken to suppose that they were in some way tools of an industrial bourgeoisie or however you wish to make it. That, That, I don't think, is an argument that can stand up. What were they interested in? They were looking about them and they saw a formally united state after the Civil War coming under such pressure to make it not merely fragile, but on the point of splintering the Pullman riots, the whole fiscal crisis of the 1890s. All of these things shook the fabric of the realm. And their view, as I see it, was that the role of empire was not to create new markets. It was not to restore the vitality of an elite, which already had plenty of vitality. It was an action calculated to unite the nation despite the um, physiparious tendencies that they saw around them. They were, in a way, conservative, but, to coin a phrase, progressive. That is to say, they wanted to do something that would halt what they really thought was a slide to revolution in the United States in the 1890s. At the same time, they were... They were interested in maintaining the rule of the industrial order that had given them the positions that they had, but they recognized that it couldn't continue unchanged. So they were arguing for a form of reformed capitalism, and the role of 1898 was an intermediary one of acting as an an act of national unification and once that was achieved, the next phase of trying to moderate the system, which is what Theodore Roosevelt did after he assumed the presidency, of moderating the system while preserving it and preserving the role of the elites as the mm, captains on the ship of state, that was what happened. And I think that is a way of bringing together the idiosyncratic and the individual with an understanding of these broader forces. And that. Another reason to conclude why we need to pause before assuming or even arguing that the events of eighteen ninety eight were themselves a product of a long running continuity.
1: And getting into the issue of continuity versus discontinuity, in discussing the Great War and its aftermath, you appear to lean more towards the continuity um end of the ledger. Why is that?
0: <laughs> yes. Um, well, to go back to the point we were discussing m- much earlier, uh, the First World War is, has been seen conventionally as a turning point between imperial expansion and imperial decline. Uh, my argument here is that if you look at the events of the interwar period, you find that the war was fought for all sorts of reasons, but that the victors wanted the to use their victory to conserve what they thought was in jeopardy. So the peace settlement and the actions of the colonial powers thereafter were those that are wholly consistent with the idea that empires were the highest stage of political life, uh, that uh, they were um, vectors of a civilizing mission to uplift uh, other peoples, and that uh, the imperial powers had a kind of racial, uh, as well as a civilizational in other technical senses, uh, justification for so doing. So those attitudes, uh, which were common before 1914, persisted after 1914, right down and through to the end of the Civil War, mini- uh, the end of the World War Two, minimally. So when you get to appeasement in the 1930s, uh, Chamberlain and others thought nothing of giving away other people's territories, just as Lord Salisbury did in the 1880s. The whole imperial attitude um, was sustained. And if you look at the United States after 1917, we know after the First World War, we know perfectly well. Uh, that although the U.S. did not retreat into isolation in a very simple, crude way, we know that this was the the intervention in the war of 1917 was not the precursor of a an immediate or rapid. involvement of the U.S. with the wider world. Certainly, you get uh, examples of a spread into South America uh, and already into Latin America and Central America. That's undoubtedly the case, but this is a regional expansion. Uh, The U.S. was not otherwise um, committed uh, to an assertive, even an informal expansionist process.
1: You seem to argue, in terms of the overall uh, gist of the book, that the American experience of empire in what you term the insular empire, the empire acquired, or the territories acquired after 1898, was similar to, rather than different from, the British and French experiences of that period. Why would you say that's the case?
0: Yes, it's... counterintuitive at first sight because you would think that the United States, a Republican tradition as opposed to monarchical one, and the United States' formal empire consisted of a few islands which perhaps had special qualities and so on and so on. So, uh, there, are these, the, 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 there are ways of looking at this which uh, at first sight suggest differences, but uh, when you look in detail at the islands, and I'm referring now to the ones I've especially selected, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, Philippines, and I've used Cuba as a protectorate, the clearest example of protectorates. So I've taken those four cases, which, by the way, um, even if you ignore Cuba, but uh, the others account for 95, 98% of the population of, this, of the whole of the insular territories, uh, including Alaska, incidentally. So we're not looking here at some outlier. These are very typical, the typical illustrations of the American territorial U.S. empire during the first half of the 20th century. A second point is that not only representative in that sense of the American empire, but what, it's easy to think of islands as recipients of greater forces, and it's often the case. But actually, these islands and work on the Indian Ocean has shown that this uh, point I'm about to make uh, appears elsewhere, too. Islands can be seen as microcosms of much larger geographical uh, areas. So when you look at the American empire and you ask yourself some of the key questions, was the ideology of rule any different from that of the British or French? The answer is no. Was the administration of rule any different? The answer is no. Uh, The U.S. had policies of direct and indirect rule, to use the terms. It had policies of association and assimilation. Again, I won't expand on the terms, just as the French and British did. The economy was identical in the sense that it was the classic exchange of raw materials uh, such as uh, cotton, Uh, sorry, excuse me, sugar in particular, uh, baka, uh, pineapple, and so on, in exchange for manufactured goods, just as it was in the case of the British and the French empires. And it's worth remembering uh, that just as the U.S. had trouble trying to grapple with the problem of the constitutional standing of these insular territories, as a republic, that is, so too did the French. The French had exactly the same problems uh, because they considered through uh, their Attitude and constitutional provisions as a republic were remarkably similar to those of the United States, and it posed the problem of what to do with these new areas. Would they become territories and have the right to incorporation? If not, what was their constitutional standing? So, although the British case in that respect is rather different, uh, the US can be compared again in that respect to the French Empire, and that comparison to my knowledge has never been made. So with those examples, uh, you can see great similarities. And finally, uh, perhaps the greatest similarity of all is if you look again at the oscillations, the course of empire in the first half of the 20th century, it follows in the u.s case exactly uh, the um, development of the British and French empires, so you have the first world war, the first signs of nationalist discontent after the first world War, the colonial powers reassert themselves in the United case of the United States as well as Britain and France through to the 1930s, which in all cases is a time of immense discontent of riot of violence because of the problems of primary producers. That's the time when the so-called green uprising takes place. That is to say, when the uh, urban and urbane constitutional limited opposition to colonial rule begins to give way to mass discontent and the formation of nationalist movements on a mass scale, which were to emerge as major forces after World War II. And in the 1940s and 50s, the United States, for that reason partly, and also for reasons of the Cold War, decolonized its insular empire at precisely the time that the British and French were decolonizing their empires. I rest my case.
1: You state, uh, following up that uh, observation, that "quote political euthanasia brought colonial rule to a quick, if not entirely peaceful end. Uh, Why was that?
0: Yes. uh, The underlying reason, I think, is that After 1945, you can glimpse a development that began to expand in the 1950s and is with us today. And I refer here to the third phase of my story of globalization, what I've called post-colonial globalization. What's happening after 1945, I emphasize not immediately, but we can see it clearly in retrospect. Uh, was a change in the nature of the conditions that had underwritten the land based, territorial and insular empires that I've been referring to. The world economy began to change. Manufacturing started in Asia and in the settler colonies of course already in the United States, but was expanding in Australia, uh, South Africa, Canada, New Zealand on a larger scale. It began actually in the 1930s, the world also had to grapple with new organizations, the United Nations and now sundry international organizations rising above individual nation states and claiming authority over matters such as another novelty, human rights. So human rights, not just civil rights, which are politically uh, defined for the most part, but human rights, meaning welfare, education, etc., these became ideals which increasingly through the representation in the United Nations uh, became actionable and policed by the United Nations. Now, of course, in a sense, the United Nations had no power other than that uh, of the constituent large nations, and that remains the case today. But increasingly, the United Nations, allied to a new means of communication, was able to command what we will call the commanding heights of the kind of moral uh, morality of the world. And This became of particular importance during the Cold War, uh, when the Soviets were proclaiming an alternative ideology and suggesting that uh, the the trampled peoples of the world would do better to go communist. uh, The US, Britain, France had to counter that in various ways. And one of the ways in which they countered it was uh, by moving rapidly towards decolonization. So what you had after 1945 were really two sub-phases. After 1945, as after 1918, the colonial powers that had won uh, decided that they wanted to resume normal service, and so they, the French and the British, put a lot of money into the empire. They rejigged it. They thought that they could create a new uh, phase of a collaborative, cooperative empire. We called ours the Commonwealth. The French called theirs the Union Française. This was a kind of schema to update empires. So you see, there's continuity there. But what happened in the 1950s? that not an. Example. Exact date but if you take in the mid 1950s, say 1955 is a good enough date. By that time, the forces I've just referred to were having an effect, and the United States, which had backed the recovery of the Western empires after 1945, began to change its mind in order to, partly anyway, in order to deal with the challenges of the Cold War and of competitive coexistence. So, after 1945, it seemed that the empires were a good thing uh, for the future, for the stability of the West, and so on. In a short space of time, by the mid-1950s, the calculations had changed, and it became more important to try to work with the nationalists instead of suppressing
1: them. In your conclusion, you seem to argue that the American and British empires were different rather than similar. Why was that?
0: In the sense that I have spoken so far, the American empire that I refer to is the one that was last studied in 1962 in a book, an excellent book, by a man called Perkins. Uh, that is the, the empire of of the territorial empires, I'll call it that is the empire of territory of administrators of the export crops and so on and so on that was created in 1898 and 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 fell apart or was uh, demolished uh, in the 1950s now that's an empire that actually can be compared with the British and French empires for the reasons that I've given now the oddity to my mind and here I should say that I'm a uh, a bit of an exception, uh, the oddity, as I'm going to call it, is that exactly at the moment when the United States was losing or giving up its territorial empire, let's say, with the, with the re- Cuban revolt in 59 and the incorporation of Hawaii in 59, those are the two uh, last of the so-called colonies, by that time, the United States, from my perspective and in my definition of empires didn't have an empire, and it was exactly at that moment, or after 1945 anyway, when when scholars uh, begin to talk of the United States as an empire, so a lot here depends uh, turns on what definition you give to empire, and that's a huge topic that we may not have time to discuss. I have, uh, I think, good reasons for adhering to the view that the empires of 1800 to 1950 were territorial, essentially. Now, my view is that the United States was indeed uh, the leading world power uh, from 1945 onwards. Uh, But it exercised its power in ways which were, uh, you could call them imperial, but you can't say it was an empire. Uh, That is not a semantic division. It is possible to have imperialism. You can argue that the spread of U.S. influence and colonization across uh, the United States uh, in the 19th century was imperialist. You could argue that. But the net result was not an empire. That is perfectly consistent. So I think you can argue for reforms, forms of imperialism, if you so wish, after 1945, by which I would roughly mean the, uh, the political intervention informally, the, you know, the, uh, the, the desire to influence other people's polities, and so on and so on. You could argue for that, but there was no empire, in my sense, created. I would further argue that the influence of the U.S. after uh, 1945 was far less than it is uh, is, is conventionally ascribed to it, but that's a point that perhaps we don't have time to discuss, so if you're going to call the U.S. an empire after 1945, You are using the term in a way that does not uh, permit comparison with previous territorial empires, which were brought about by conditions of globalization uh, that uh, made it not only possible, but necessary to integrate other parts of the world for the reasons I've given. Those conditions didn't exist after 1945, again, for the reasons I've given. Changes in the economy, changes in world morality. Rise of nationalism, etc. And so, by calling it an empire, it seems to me uh, that scholars uh, perpetuate a confusion. And once you start calling the non territorial uh, empire, in inverted commas, of the United States, an empire, uh, then of course you get all these books that say, Oh, well, are we the new Rome, etc.? Now, those. That question presumes that you have a basis for comparison in which the units are sufficiently alike to make the basis, the comparison possible. But they're not. They're entirely different. So some scholars in reacting to this have said, oh, well, we can call it an empire, possibly, but it was an empire of a different kind. I'm quoting. Well, if it was an empire of a different kind, what on earth does that mean? Perhaps it wasn't an empire at all. So I have fallen back on a term which I uh, use with some diffidence, but it's not my term, of course, it's a term in the literature, of saying that the United States was an aspiring hegemon, that is to say, a world leader during this time. And I use that term to differentiate the conditions which underlay the exercise of U.S. influence in the world after 1945 from the conditions that that pertained from the centuries before then.
1: Professor, if you could, uh, under three minutes, if there was one thing that you wanted the reader to take away from your book, what would it be?
0: <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, yes, in under three minutes, I th- try to do this. I, What I think I would uh, say to the reader, or I hope that the reader will at least consider, is this, and remember, we've got, two, I'm aiming at two sets of readers. The first set of readers are those who are US specialists. The second set of readers are those who are specialists or interested in the history of empires, particularly, but not exclusively Western empires. Now, I don't want to exaggerate uh, what I'm about to say, but here is the appeal I would make. Notwithstanding the huge recognition and, and strides made by U.S. scholars in recognizing the need to look outward and to incorporate elements uh, of globalization and so on, I think it's still true to say that there's a long way to go in that direction and that uh, one could even generalize that much of the main street uh, uh, attitudes are still particularly insular, and also that the scholarly level, understandably, uh, scholarship is very heavily based on the United States and within the United States. so This is perfectly normal. It's perfectly understandable. All I would argue then is that on that point, that because we live in a globalized world, it might be profitable, certainly interesting, possibly illuminating to take a view of U.S. history, which is it from the outside in, providing, of course, it understands just enough of the inside uh, not to make a nonsense of uh, a mountain of admirable scholarship so i would hope that the us will this my book will help us readers to see themselves to a degree as others see them or at least as this other sees them and the second and final point is that Uh, imperial historians, historians of Western empires, as I have said already, uh, give up very largely on the United States after 1783. True, uh, there is work on the remaining colonies in the Caribbean, there are exceptions, etc., etc., but by and large, imperial historians look elsewhere. I do not know of a book of any kind of imperial history in French or, or English that actually says anything about the United States between 1783 and Pearl Harbor. And when it picks up on Pearl Harbor, it's all about the Cold War and decolonization. So what I'm saying to the imperial historians is that you, too, need to rethink your attitude towards empire. There was an empire here of two kinds. Britain's informal influence was extensive in the first half of the 19th century. The United States itself became an imperial power, creating an empire as others were too in the late 19th century. And most important of all, There's the forgotten empire, the insular empire that the U.S. created in 1898, dissolved in the 1950s, and no book on imperial history mentions that or gives it more than a paragraph, if you're lucky. I want imperial historians to revise their view of the world as well to incorporate this um, newish, I hope, view of the U.S. experience.
1: Professor Hopkins, I would like to thank you very much. Uh, you've been uh, uh, wonderful here explicating the your book. This is a I can tell you myself, uh, from my own experience of reading it, a voluminous, intricate <laughs> yes. um, book, and it's a, a first class example of historical scholarship which any reader Uh, from whatever background or historiographical um, tendencies will enjoy perusing and reading in depth. Thank you again very much. Charles Cotillo, New Books Network. Thank you again.
0: Thanks very much, Charles.